preacher. And again, I say the same thing every night, brother. We look forward to hearing you preach. I look forward to it. And, uh, and uh, listen, we need to warm up. We need to, we need to hear some amens, all right? Uh, let, let's, let's, uh, let's start with this side over here. I want everyone on, on all of this side, on the piano side, to give me a hearty amen on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. All right, let's try this side over here. Ready? Uh, hearty amen on the count of three. One, two, three. All right. I'm not going to try and decide which side won. All right, we're glad to have you, brother. Come preach the word of God. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you very much. Uh, one time I was um, in a congregation, a wonderful congregation, but boy, were they quiet. And uh, I, don't, I don't have to have amens to feel good about what I'm preaching. I, I pretty much settled that this is the word of God and this is the truth before I ever get up. So I can enjoy it in an empty room all by myself. I've done it. I've done it before. Uh, but uh, preaching away and these people just sat there and looked at me like this. And so I kind of chided them. And I think it was in Michigan. It was either in Ohio or Michigan. I, it was. And, and I, I, after the service, a couple of guys came up to me in the foyer and they said, uh, now, Brother Sam, thing you got to understand is we're not Southerners. Now, I'm from Oklahoma, so we're a little far to the Southwest to be called Southerners like the Southerners of the South, if you know what I mean. But he said, we're not like Southerners. We're not emotional people. We don't, we, that's why you're not going to hear that out of us. We just don't do that. We're Midwesterners. I said, so no emotion. That's right. I said, that's funny. I watched Ohio State and Michigan play football. What'd you do, bus all those people in from the South that are going crazy on every play, you know? So, you know what I found out? Everybody's got an emotional button to push. Um, but I just hope we have a spiritual emotional button to push. And by the way, amen is a biblical term. And it assents to the truth. And the Apostle Paul said that when an unlearned man or an unbeliever comes into the congregation, into the assembly, while the Word of God is being preached, then that unbelieving man or, unbelie uh, or unlearned man or unbeliever is to be convinced of all, all the congregation. So how, how's that going to happen? It doesn't say the preacher has to convince him. That unlearned person is to be convinced of all or that unbeliever, convinced of all. Now, how may all participate in a way so that that unbeliever would be convinced? How could they do that? By a very biblical term, which is when truth is proclaimed, amen. And then they can be convinced of all. But I'll tell you what a lot of churches convince an unbeliever or an unlearned man. They might convince him that the preacher believes what he's preaching, but I'm not sure anybody else in here does. How are we doing? Having a good time? Or? <laughs> but an amen convinces all. I went to a church, uh, followed a pastor that had been there 29 years at Southwest Baptist Church. He taught them not to say amen. He taught them not to say amen. And uh, so when I went there after having pastored uh, the Bible Baptist Church Stillwater for 16 years and a very lively and young congregation, man, it just killed me to go in there and it was just dead silent. So I did a little teaching on that out of the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 14. 
and taught them that it was biblical. And, uh, you know, I went through the whole thing, sort of an exposition of that uh, chapter that is really not about tongues. It's about prophesying, 1 Corinthians 14, or proclaiming and preaching the Word of God. So I went through this sermon, and it seemed like the people got it, and they were thanking me for it after church. And I told my wife, oh, man, I can't wait till that was a Wednesday night. I can't wait till Sunday. I mean, we're going to get some amens on Sunday. We had a good service, and I preached my gizzard out, you know, and just preaching away. Nothing. So I preached it again the next Wednesday night. <laughs> uh, but you've already preached this, right? And I'm going to keep preaching it till it gets across. And so anyway, the next Sunday, here's the interesting thing. The next Sunday I was preaching and, and, uh, and the people were responding, you know, and they were assenting to the truth and saying amen. And about a 50-some-year-old lady from about four rows back, first-time visitor, walked down the aisle and got saved that morning. She got saved. And uh, after she had been led to Christ here at the altar and got saved, and my wife was talking to her, and maybe, I don't know if you've taken the information or what uh, there, and uh, we were baptizing. And uh, the lady said to my wife, she let her know that uh, she was my wife, and she told my wife, you know, I've never been to a church where they said amen. And every time your husband would say something that was re registering or resonating in my soul, and the people said amen, it's like it went in deeper. And so when I baptized her, I asked her, can you tell that testimony to our congregation? And she said, I don't think I can talk to that many people, honestly. I said, well, can I tell it? Yes, you can. And I said, and I'm going to ask you, am I telling this right? I went, will you help me with it? She said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. So I got her into baptistry. I gave her that testimony that every time that the people would say amen, it's like it went deeper in her heart and had more impact. And uh, I mean, I could see it on the looks of our congregation. And after church, they said, man, that's amazing. That is utterly amazing. I said, what's amazing? I said this to how many people? I don't know. What's amazing? What that lady said, that when you said, hey, we said amen, that it went in deeper. I said, why is that amazing? It's exactly what the Word of God said would happen. And we're amazed when it turns out to be so. Well, anyway, I spent too long on that, I can tell. This isn't going over very good at all. <laughs> but it is, it's right. It's not just to make noise. It's not to make the preacher feel good about his preaching. If he's that insecure that he has to have amens to be sure about what he's preaching, he's got no business in the pulpit. But if there is a response that convinces people that that preacher believes what he's preaching, but he's not the only one that believes it, then they can be convinced of all and judged of all of the truth that is being preached. And so they will fall down on their face and confess that God is in you of a truth. You ought to read that in 1 first, in, uh, first Corinthians chapter 14. It's worth preaching, but it's just not where I'm preaching tonight. Matthew chapter 16, if you would please. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to begin our reading in verse 21. Before we read, I want to talk to you just a little bit. Uh, before we get into the passage that begins in verse number 21. Now... This is a time in uh, Jesus' public ministry and travel with his disciples that you can look on a map sometime and see that uh, northeast of uh, Galilee and Capernaum where Jesus did many of his mighty works, 
most of his mighty works, as a matter of fact, uh, then you can look up the northeast and there is a place called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Jesus had his disciples up there and that is where he said to the disciples, um, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah, some Elias or Elijah. Some say this, some say that. And then Jesus asked that all-important question, but who do ye say that I am? And this is a time when we're all cheering for Peter because he spoke up, as he often did, but this time he was right on. When he said, who do ye say that I am? Peter acted as the spokesman and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that truth is central to all truth in the Bible. Every bit of it. You take, you take the deity of Jesus Christ away and there's no need in us meeting here. We have nothing to talk about. We have nothing to say. We have no reason to meet. But Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we all want to say that, well, I do, but you're Midwesterners, so maybe you don't want to. But anyway, I want to say, way to go, Simon Peter. Boy, how I'm so happy for him. It's just a great time. And then Jesus said to Peter, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then Jesus, after commending Peter, then he begins to talk to them about his purpose, his Father's purpose, and the authority that he is going to give, the role that Peter, a role that Peter is going to have and such as that. And then in verse number 20, notice this. I said 21. Uh, Let's look in verse 20. After this, then charged he, Jesus, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now that sounds really strange, doesn't it? Who do men say that I am? This and that. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. You are exactly right. And commends him, but don't tell anybody. Now that sounds just opposite of how we are taught and how we are supposed to think. So why did Jesus say that? Well, you're going to have to wait a while before we get to that. But I wanted to show you that it's there that he said, tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. And the reason he told them that is revealed as we begin to read through here. And I'll give some explanation as we go along. Verse 21. From that time forth <clears throat> began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed now he began, this is, he is just now letting them know what's coming. He began to show unto his disciples and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Oh, wow. So much for that moment of glory. With Simon Peter, verse 23, but he, Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Ouch. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, see that paragraph marker there? 
the thought shifts and he says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, let, let, let me make something clear here. Uh, I have in my Bible circled the word soul. And I have also, in verse 25, circled the, the word life. They are the exact same word. They come from the exact Greek word. They mean the exact same thing. And so I'll tell you why that's important here in just a little bit. Verse 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. What is a man profit? He shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul or for his life? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Our Heavenly Father, we pray one more time to say thank you for the inspired word of the living God. Inspired and preserved what else would we have to say if it were not for this book? With what authority could we say anything if it were not for thy inspired and preserved word? So God, we say thank you for it. At the same time, we understand that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. And at the same time, we remember that your word is not able to be understood by the unbeliever apart from the life of God in him. But we also understand, O Lord, that without the working of your Holy Spirit, we can't effectively proclaim your word, teach your word, preach your word, read your word. And you said that when the Holy Spirit is come, who now indwells us according to your word, that when the Holy Spirit has come, He will guide you into all truth. And so, God, I want to say thank you for the working of the Holy Spirit. Not just thank you, but we ask also for the continued working of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Make this meaningful, profitable. We don't want to go to church just to go to church. We don't want to host a special meeting just to have a revival meeting, just for the sake of having it. God, we want these moments to count. And we want this meeting to count. And that can only happen in as much as we are dependent upon and leaning upon the working of your Holy Spirit. Help me to do that as the preacher. Help your people, O oh God, to rely upon you for understanding uh, through the working of your Holy Spirit. And may you get glory to yourself through this time together in the Word. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Back uh, several months ago, a number of months ago now, 
I had in the same summer, I'm trying to remember the exact year, but it was either 18, 19, I can't remember exactly which, but in the same summer I had two things happen uh, that where I was challenged. I was challenged about my physical conditioning. One was from a man, and I was preaching in Boston, and he is a graduate of school. He graduated when he was about 57 or 8 years old, somewhere right in there. It's called the grandpa of the campus, you know. But he really wasn't because we had another man that came when he was 72, had just gotten saved, and he came to Bible college. Nonetheless, uh, so I'm preaching up in Boston, and this guy is there visiting his son, and he came to the meeting, and he said, Brother Sam, how about we get together for breakfast? I said, okay. I noticed when he came in, by now he is 62 years old, 63 right in there. And when he came in, he had on a T-shirt, and I watched him walk in. I was already seated, and I watched him walk in, and I thought, whoa. And I thought of his name, you know, I know his name. And he walked in, he's got these big biceps and broad shoulders and the barrel chest and the narrow hips. And he walks in, and I thought, mercy, I'd hate to tangle with this guy. He is in shape. So we sat down, we started talking, and I called him by name, and I said, man, it looks like you're staying in good shape. Well, he tried to be modest about it. I said, come on, you wore the T-shirt so I would notice. Don't sit there looking so humble about it all. So anyway, we're talking about it, and he said, um, uh, Brother Sam, you could, you could do this. I'm sitting there with a short sleeve shirt on, and you know, my arm's looking like that. And uh, he said, you could do this. I said, I could do what? You could build yourself up like this. And I said, uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. And he said, you could. So he started challenging me to get into an exercise problem. Wouldn't you like to get in better shape? And wouldn't you like to look like this? And I said, well, you know, I do miss the days when I used to exercise, push-ups, and do the whole thing. I miss the days. I'm as vain as any man. I miss it when my wife would come up and do this and then say, nice, nice. And I would feel like this, you know. And, uh, and I kind of miss that. Now she comes up and says, what happened? Uh, something's wrong here. So yeah, I miss those days, but no, not that much. And, and he said, well, you, you can do it. And so he tried to press me and I kept resisting. And he said, why wouldn't you just take, you know, join a gym club or something like that, do the exercise and get in shape? And I said, I don't want to. And he said, you don't want to. I said, no. Why not? I said, it costs too much. And he said, uh, well, no, you can find these specials, these uh, gyms, you know, they run these specials. I said, Bruce, it's not the money. I'm a Baptist preacher. I've got plenty of money. What are you talking about? So it's not that. It's, that's not the price I'm talking about. It's the price to put my body through, what it takes to look like that. I travel all the time and I'm preaching and I just don't have the energy. I don't have the desire. So you can talk all you want to. I ain't going to do it because it costs too much. And a month later, I was on the other side of the country, the state of Washington, and at a youth camp there preaching. And you go to this youth camp, and it's right above the Columbia River. And as far as east and west is concerned, is in central part of Washington. And it's real dry and arid there. And it's very hot in the summer, like it was in 95 degrees, which they thought that was the death knell there. But we're used to 105 and stuff like that every once in a while at home. And so anyway, uh, the, you, you, the interesting thing is, though, you look out to the west, and what do you see? You see out there this beautiful Mount Adams standing there. It's the third largest, highest mountain in the Cascade Mountain Range, and it's snow-covered year-round. 
So here you are in all this heat and all this brown grass that's all around you and such as that. And then you look over there and there's this magnificent mountain. I mean, it's hard to not look at it. It's just absolutely beautiful uh, standing out there. And, and uh, so I said to the guy, one of our graduates is a pastor at the church that owns it and he runs the camp. And uh, I said, TJ, that mountain, I can't keep my eyes off of it. He said, yeah, it's spectacular. And I said, yes, it is. I said, I bet that's a sight from the top of that. And then you got a better view of all the Cascade Range and the beautiful snow-covered mountains there, including Mount, um, what, what's that mountain um, around Seattle there? Thank you very much, Sandra. Uh, anyway, that mountain, uh, I always want to say Everest, but that's the big one over there in Asia. So anyway, this, you, you can see it all. I said, I bet it's a beautiful sight from there. And he said, oh, yeah, it is. He said, I've been up it. No, yeah, been up it. Sure have. About a dozen of the guys got together, members of the church, and they climbed up that mountain. He said, Brother Sam, from the bottom when we started, up and down, 18 hours. Almost nonstop, 18 hours. I said, whoa, was it worth it? Oh, yeah, we're doing it again. And he said, hey, you're coming back. Why don't you come early, and we'll, we'll take an extra day, and we'll go up that mountain. I said, Nope. And he said, uh, well, yeah, we could do that. And, and he starts pushing me on going up that mountain. And I said, TJ, it's not going to happen. I'm not going. And he said, well, why not? And I said, it costs too much. I am not going to pay the price. Oh, we could get the equipment all you need. I said, I'm a Baptist preacher. I got plenty of money. You know the story. And so I said, that's not it. I'm not going to put myself through that. We'll go slower. I said, three days? Come on, it would take me at least that to get up, let alone come back down. And I said, nope, I'm just not going to do it. If somebody wants to take me up in a helicopter, I'll think about it. But other than that, I'm not going. It costs too much. Now, the reason I mention that is because that if you know Jesus as your Savior, you know, I know that you know this, you know that in our spiritual life, we should be growing ever stronger and climbing ever higher. Now, we know that. If, if you know the Lord, if Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit, if you at all care about the things of God, then you know that this laid back, satisfied, stay in the same place forever or backslide and justify it, that is not what you find in the scripture that is not acceptable to the Lord. And you know, like I know, that there should never be a time that we are not growing stronger in the faith and climbing higher in our spiritual life. We know that's so. Now, I, I want to be real honest with you about it. I don't want to sound critical. I don't want to sound judgmental. I, I don't want to do that. But I can just tell you, I've tried to pay attention over the years, and I can tell you right now, if this is a typical, I'm not saying it is, if this is a typical independent Baptist congregation, then I will say this to you, more than likely, the most of the membership of this church, they are not growing stronger, and they are not climbing higher. Now, that's just a sad fact. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be ugly. But I'm not going to stand and pretend things are different than they are. And the number of people that continue to grow stronger and climb higher stand out big time in almost every church. 
Because I have pastors that point out this one and that one. And yeah, I might mention a member. Oh yeah, that member, that boy, that person. And they talk about the fact that they, are, they never stop going. They never stop uh, learning. They never stop their appetite. Never changes. They want to grow in the Lord. And so they are growing stronger and climbing higher. Now hold on just a second. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you of this. I'm not too proud to do this. I'm 76 years of age. And if I have the presence of mind... Till I'm 95 or 100, my mother lived to be not, almost three weeks from 96. Her mom lived to 103. There's a lot of longevity in our house. And if I live to be 100 years old and have soundness of mind, now my wife says that's not looking too good, but if it should happen that I live to be 100 and have soundness of mind, there is no reason for me not to continue to keep growing stronger and keep climbing higher in my walk with God. We know that's so. And if that is the way it's supposed to be, then somebody should ask the question, why isn't it so? That rather than somebody standing out as a spiritual-minded soul in the congregation, somebody that is growing stronger and somebody that is climbing higher, why is it they stand out when really it ought to be normal Christianity? Two amens is not going to get it. That kind of Christian life should be normal Christianity. It should not be so noticeable. It should be expected of everyone that knows Jesus. So why doesn't that happen? Same reason I don't look like Bruce. Same reason I haven't been up Mount Adams. The cost is too high. That's what our passage is about. The high cost. Now, to be clear, I want to say that your salvation and my salvation costs, but it didn't cost me. And your salvation didn't cost you. That price, as we know, was paid for by Jesus Christ. If anybody's in this room and you've never come to the place of salvation where you have your sins be forgiven before God and you have been given eternal life and God is your father and you are his child. In other words, if you've never been saved, then I have to tell you good news tonight. That you don't have to roll up your sleeves and do this and that or not do this and that in order to become a child of God. Uh, you don't pay the price to be saved. There's no price you can pay to become a Christian, to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus already paid the price. And when he went to the cross of Calvary, listen to this. When he went to the cross of Calvary, he went there, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, that he might reconcile us to God. And here's what the chapter there in 2 Corinthians 5 ends like. It ends like this. For he hath made him, God hath made Jesus, to be sin. He's not a sinner, but he became the sin bearer. For he hath made, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm just telling you, the story of salvation is a marvelous story. Because here's what happened to me and everybody else that got saved. When I was a six-year-old boy, I walked down that aisle aware of the fact that not only is there a hell, but without Jesus, that's where this boy's going to go. 
And the preacher preached what Jesus did to keep a boy like me from going to hell. And I'd heard of it in my home and in my house. And I walked from about five or six rows back myself, sitting by my dad and said, Dad, I need to go get saved. I'd talked to him about it the week before. And my dad said, fine. And my dad walked down the aisle and knelt right over here. And Mr. Chance is the deacon that came and took his Bible and helped me, uh, read to me out of the Bible, talked to me about some things. And I called upon the Lord and I got saved. Now, I walked down here, down that aisle, before I called upon Jesus, I walked down there, and my sins were heavy upon me, even a boy, even a boy. I was aware of my sinfulness before God. I hadn't cussed. I hadn't smoked. I had never been drunk. I might have hit my sisters, but it was self-defense, honestly. So I hadn't committed a whole plethora of horrendous sins and such as that. I hadn't done that, but I knew I was a sinner before God. And when I got up from there and went back to my seat, I was no longer the sinner I was because the sins that were on my account are now put on the account of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ was put on my account. I was reconciled to God. You don't pay that price. Jesus pays that price. If you're waiting till you reach a certain level in your life in order to be saved or think you're saved or try to be saved or such as that, you're missing the whole point. Everything that was necessary, it's called a free gift. In the book of Romans chapter 4, it's called a free gift four times. That Jesus coming and dying for our sins, he died to give us the free gift of salvation. Free gift, free gift, free gift, free gift. So the way of salvation costs, it costs God. It costs His Son to die on Calvary for us to be saved. He paid the price. All we can do is receive it. But Jesus is not here in our passage teaching how to be saved. He is teaching disciples how to be disciples. He is teaching saved people what it is to be saved. See, and so here's how the thing develops and how it goes. You know, after Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you saw with me that Jesus then began to tell them. He began to give them understanding. Uh, please uh, try to get in your mind that they had come through what would be called the year of popularity because Jesus of Nazareth was wildly popular. I don't even like to use the name in relation to Jesus, uh, this popularity thing, but he was. And people were coming from everywhere over the known world and wherever Jews were. And they were coming, some anticipating the Messiah, some because they had ill or sick or diseased or demon-possessed people. And they were coming and, and they came by the multitudes. They just kept coming. And, and so here they are and they are coming to, to hear Jesus. And Jesus is doing all of this work and all of these miracles and he is doing his father's bidding and doing his work. So Jesus is doing all of this and teaching them. And now he says to them, being as popular as he was, he said, now, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And I will be killed. His words. And I'll raise again the third day. Now, I don't think you and I probably are even able to grasp that Jesus saying, I'll be delivered into the hands of those who hate me and be killed. I doubt if we can really fully grasp the impact it had upon the disciples 
and the shock effect of that statement. You know why? Well, because they looked at his popularity. You know why? Because they'd observed his life. Holy, harmless, sinless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Power. I said all power. Power over demons. Power over the elements could stop the wind and the waves. A power over disease. Power over leprosy. Power over death. I mean, he had all powers given unto him. All authority, all powers given unto him. They saw that power. So they heard him teach. They watched his life. They saw the power that's demonstrated. And one thing the disciples were convinced about, and Peter was the spokesman, the rest of them except Judas, who was a hypocrite, were in agreement when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so knowing that, believing that, do you know what they were expecting? They were expecting everybody to soon realize it. How could they deny it? I said, how could they deny it? This person had never walked, and now they're walking. It was manifest. This person was a leper, and now they're not. This one was blind, and now he sees. This one was deaf, and now he hears. This one was demon-possessed, and now he's not. I mean, they, he showed his might and his power. How could they not believe he's the Messiah? And they believed it, and they were convinced at the time that was coming that everyone would acknowledge it and see it, and that Jesus would therefore establish his kingdom, that he would reign upon the throne of David, and that he would deliver Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire. That was their thinking. See, that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. The prophecies were that this Messiah that would come would be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they believed that. And so they watched him and they saw him and they knew him and they observed everything about him. He fulfilled all the requirements of the Messiah. And now it's time that everybody recognize who he is like we recognize who he is. Now it's time that he established the throne of David, that he liberates Israel and restores Israel to its once known glory among the nations of the world, that he restores that and that he reigns. And that is why the disciples kept talking about who's going to sit on his right hand. Who's going to sit on his left hand? Who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom? Because they thought it was coming. Now. They did. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not so sure about that. Well, what are you going to do with this? Because see, after Jesus raised from the dead, now we're in the book of Acts chapter 1. Now that Jesus is raised from the dead later on, Acts chapter 1, and the disciples are all aware that he is raised from the dead, you know what they came and asked Jesus? Go read it yourself in the early verses of Acts 1. They came and said to him, Wilt thou now? He's resurrected from the dead. Wilt thou now restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that you're raised, now can we be liberated from Rome? Now will you reign on the throne of David? Now can we reign with you? One on your right hand. Of course, there's going to be those that have rank. And James and John probably thought, why not us? Peter and Andrew said, what's he talking? Why not us? And there was strife among the disciples. You know why? Because they weren't thinking about the true revelation about the Messiah. And Jesus is confronting with them with their wrongheadedness. That's why he said to them, 
don't go tell anybody because they didn't have the right message yet. They would have gone to teach about he's going to restore Israel. It's time for us to be delivered from Rome. It's time for the throne of David to be occupied. We're going to reign with him. Israel's going to be restored to a position of glory in the nations of the world. That would have been their message. Jesus knew that would have been their message. And so he said to them, don't tell anybody. That's why that verse says that. Just, just, you don't go, don't go tell anybody I'm the son of God. It's not time. Don't you do it. You got the wrong message. You don't even understand. So hold on just a second. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of those that hate me. I'm going to be killed and raised the third day. That's what is going to happen. And Peter says, oh, no. No, not under my watch. Come on, impetuous Peter. Speaking up, and he takes hold on him. He took him. So if you study that out, it literally means like if I said to my wife, come on, it's time to go. You're, you and Miss Lois have been talking long enough, and it's time to go. And she refuses to go, so I finally get a hold of her and say, now would you please come? No, but let's say I get a hold of her, and I usher her out. I took hold of her. Now, I don't think I've ever done that. I don't think I have. Some of you have had military backgrounds. You had a military background. Raise your hand here just saying, yeah, praise the Lord for you. So, so if you've been in the military, you know that if a superior comes and gives you orders that he has authority to give you, and after he gives you the orders, you take a hold of him and say, now hold on just a minute. Let me tell you how it's going to be. How's that going to go? <laughs> Not so good? <laughs> I remember my dad saying to me on a Saturday, my dad said, uh, Sam, I'm going to the sale. I used to love to go to auctions and sales with him uh, on Saturdays when we weren't in the field and everything. I love that. I love being with my dad, and I love that kind of stuff. And my dad says, Sam, you're not going with me today. You're going to stay here, and you're going to clean out the chicken house. And after you get the chicken house cleaned out, then you're going to do this. And gave me several undesirable chores. And so I, what if I got a hold of my dad and said, let me tell you something, Dad. I am going with you, and when I get back, I'm going to go fishing. And here's how it's going to be. Now, I don't ever remember doing that with my dad. And if I'd have done it, I still wouldn't remember it because I'd be in la-la land somewhere, you know. You just don't do that. And, and hold on just a second. We're not talking about a military officer. and We're not talking about a dad, though he's a good dad like mine. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the Son of God. And Peter lays hold on him. He said, no, this shall not be unto thee. This is not going to happen. Uh, not, not under my watch. This shall not happen to thee. And so he actually is so brazen, having so, uh, been so well spoken, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Obviously, he didn't understand the role of the Messiah. Because Jesus is thinking of the role that was prophesied by Isaiah. And if you don't believe it, read Isaiah 53, where in 12 verses, you'll see all but three verses talk about the coming clearly of the Messiah, the greatest Old Testament passage prophesying the coming of the Messiah and his work. And uh, nine out of the 12 verses talk about his suffering and his suffering, his suffering and his death. Can I have your attention? Right over the disciples' head. Death? Suffering? Dying? No, this shall not be. Time to reign. Time to restore Israel. And Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Shocking, huh? 
I said, shocking, huh? Is this not on? Shocking, huh? Get thee behind me, Satan. Called him Satan? Was Peter even saved if he was the devil? Well, Jesus knew he wasn't the devil. You know what Satan means? Opponent. Adversary. One who opposes. And when Peter got a hold of him and said, this shall not be unto me, that is satanic behavior. In other words, he is saying, you're opposing my father's purposes. You're opposing my father's will. The behavior that you have now fits the word Satan, which means opponent or to oppose or to become an adversary. And Jesus, hold on, Peter would have said vehemently, he would have said, I am not an adversary of Jesus the Christ. No, but you're an adversary of the father's purposes. And the Father's purposes are that the Messiah suffer and die and pay for our sins. And what you need to do, Peter, Jesus is telling him, is get out of my face and get where you belong behind me and follow me like I told you from the beginning. Get thee behind me. Quit being an adversary and an opponent. Is everybody with me here so far? That, that's what's going on. So Jesus, what he has done by the time we come to the end of that verse, what he has done is he has, um, he has redefined for them the definition of Messiah. In other words, if we'd have gone to the disciples and said, hi, you're one of the followers of Jesus, right? We understand you believe he is the Messiah, most definitely. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? <laughs> what does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. He's going to show by all this might and all this power who he really is. People everywhere are finally going to come to the realization of the Jews that he is, that he is indeed the Messiah, and they're going to believe in him. He's going to set upon the throne of David. He's going to restore Israel back to its glory days uh, like it was under the days of Solomon, only better. And Jesus is the Messiah. It means he's going to reign. It means liberation is coming and freedom from the oppression of Rome. And Jesus is going to reign and we're going to reign with him. That's what it means. Jesus said no. And he redefines Messiahship. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be delivered into the hands of those that hate me and I will die understand Messiahship. Now, let me uh, ask you this question. If the disciples did not understand Messiahship, if they didn't understand that, which they did not, can I get some agreement here so I can move on? I mean, you've got to make sure we're all going on this thing together. If, if the disciples did not understand Messiahship, which they obviously did not, what's the likelihood they had a clear understanding of discipleship? Well, there's no chance. What does it mean to be Messiah? Already told you. It means he's going to sit on the throne of David, restore Israel, reign, glory. <laughs> it's good. What does it mean to be his followers? Well, to be one of his disciples? Well, somebody's going to sit on his right hand, somebody on his left hand. Somebody's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. And what we're going to do is reign with him. Did you know they actually will someday? But it was a lot farther out than they were expecting. And, and they actually will. They're going to sit on the 12 thrones of the tribes of Israel and reign with Jesus. 
They will. That's in the prophetic future. But here he's talking to them right now. And so we must redefine for them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be a disciple because they were messed up about what Messiah meant and they're messed up about what disciple meant. So if we ask them the question, it means we're going to reign with him. We're going to have key positions. We're going to have authority. Somebody's going to be his right hand. Somebody on his left hand, we're going to reign with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then that little paragraph marker, Jesus begins to talk and blows that thinking away too. Look at it with me. Look there. What verse is that? Uh, escapes my mind right now. Down to verse number 24. Then, I've got that word circled. Then, after he lets them know that Peter is way out of line and their thinking is wrong, they shouldn't go tell that he's the Messiah because they don't understand what that means. Not yet. In verse 24, then said Jesus unto his disciples, this is not teaching men how to be saved. Who is he saying this to? His disciples. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is he doing? He's showing them the cost of discipleship. He will pay the price for their salvation. Somebody say amen. He will pay the price for their salvation. Now, as we look at it, he paid the price for their salvation and for our salvation. Now, what does it mean to be a disciple? I'm amazed at how much emphasis there is on discipleship and how, how much of the present day discipleship material avoids the clearest words that you can find in the Bible on what it means to be a disciple. I mean, there are whole courses and lessons and books written on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is talking to some men that are greatly confused at this time, yes or no? They are greatly confused at this time. Now, what did the master say? He didn't say, read this booklet. It'll take you two days to read it. But you read this booklet. Jesus said, no, if you're going to be my disciple, here it is. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's it. That's what it takes to be a disciple. <laughs> well, uh, Pastor, I think... Probably I should have sent you ahead that I was going to preach this. Because if you'd have put a sign on streets or let it be known by social media and everything else, that on Tuesday night we'll be preaching about self-denial, people would flood into this place like you wouldn't believe. Because we live in a culture that's all about self-denial. <laughs> not really, huh? Yeah. No, it's not popular. It's not. Never has been. But Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, if any man will deny himself, Okay, so let's just start there about the matter of self-denial. And so much of the teaching, the preaching today, if it's not as blatantly weird as that of, let's say, a Joel Osteen, then it's at least playing off the popularity of the kind of mentality and the kind of teaching of Joel Osteen that God wants you to have everything you want to have. God's there for you. He's there to enrich you. He's there to bless you. He's there to make you successful. He's there to bring out the champion that's within you. Stuff like that. Yeah. And so much of the preaching of our pulpits today is just that. But what Jesus said, Jesus says. 
If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be His disciple indeed, then I cannot unless I know what it means to deny myself. Now, do we know what deny means? I'm not going to insult your intelligence. Of course you know what deny means. Deny means to disassociate oneself from something or someone. Now, deny means to disassociate or to refuse identity with something or someone. I deny that. I deny that I know them. I deny that I'm a part of that family. I deny that this or that accusation that is made, whatever the case might be. And it means to disassociate oneself from something or someone. Now, we're talking about denial. And speaking about denial, we get a pretty good story about it as the story moves along here because the time is going to come when this Peter who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the time is going to come when Jesus is delivered into their hands, like he said, and is going to be led away to be crucified, like he said. And then somebody comes to Simon Peter and says to him, Ah, you're one of his followers. I am not. Three times. What do we call that? Peter's what? Denial. Disassociated himself. Almost unthinkable, isn't it? That he disassociated himself from the one that he said, I'll go all the way to death with you and for you. Though all these other guys may forsake you, yet will I never forsake you. And here's Peter, listen, denying any association with Jesus Christ whatsoever. And the third time, he is uh, really harsh about it by cursing in his denial. Disassociate with. So we know what denial is. He, he disassociates. Okay, so what is self-denial? What does that mean? Well, uh, you can find this pretty clear in the Word of God. There is such a thing as God's will and my will. Uh, Sam, what do you want to do with your life? I used to be asked. I'm going to, pray, I'm going to play for the Boston Celtics. I don't even like them anymore. But anyway, I'm going to play basketball for the Boston Celtics. Well, well, Sam, what are you going to do? By now it's baseball season. I'm going to play baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals. I never did enter into the football realm because they didn't want to get my bones broken and all that kind of stuff. So I never, but I was going to play basketball or I was going to play baseball. And it turns out that I kind of over... Not kind of, really overestimated my athletic ability. There wasn't a chance of me having a life in basketball or in baseball, but I said that. Well, I want to do this or I want to do that. And if you'd have come to me when I was, you know, uh, 15 years old, what do you want to do? I would talk about sports or I'd talk about farming. My dad was a farmer. I loved everything about the farm life except the chicken house. I loved everything about it. I mean, I loved farming. I loved tractors. I loved harvest time. I, I loved it all. I was just hauling hay. I even liked hauling hay. I liked the whole thing. Back when hay bales, you could pick them up. You can't pick them up anymore, but you used to pick them up. I, I loved hauling hay. Made good money off hauling hay. Yeah, I loved it. I wanted to do that or that, or I had some other ambitions and desires. And when God spoke to my heart that day when I was 16 years old, I'm putting my finger on you and you are supposed to preach and that's all you can do with your life. I wanted to argue with God. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to argue with Him. Because <clears throat> did I like preachers? Yeah, I like preaching. 
Preachers used to come to our house and eat. Man, I, lo I loved to preach. Looked up to them, sort of like the soldiers that came to my house when my brothers were in the army. Looked up to those guys. I looked up to preachers. Was taught that in my home. I love preachers and preaching. Just didn't want to be one. So for me to be a preacher, it wasn't like, I'd always dreamed of being a preacher. I'd never dreamed of being a preacher. Never thought about being, never wanted to be a preacher. In fact, I thought my pastor, I have to tell you, I thought a good while right before I was called, I thought he was kind of a sourpuss sort of a guy. You know, he doesn't look like he had a whole lot of joy and a whole lot of fun in his life. I sure wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> oh, boy, did I not understand. So, I mean, I, so what did I have to do? Well, to do what God wanted me to do, I had to say no to any ambition that I had. I had to say no to self-ambition so I could say yes to what I knew to be the will of God. It's called self-denial. Now, this doesn't have to be a career thing. You know, I mean, this has been my life, just trying to be a preacher and all of that, all of these years. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be in your daily walk, and it can be in your Christian life. Because as we sit into the sound of the Word of God, God's going to call on us to take steps of faith. God's going to call on us to put stuff out of our life that doesn't belong there. God is going to call on us to set our priorities right. And the ambition that some young people, I'm just going to shoot very, very straight with you here tonight. Some of the young people have ambitions for careers that as a pastor, I never saw anybody enter that career and live a spirit-filled life and serve effectively in the context of a New Testament church. And yet their parents are just so proud of them because they want that to be their career. And their career is going to take them away from any opportunity to be faithful to the Lord, to His church. Don't underemphasize, don't underestimate the significance of the life of a New Testament church. Every true believer is supposed to be in the context of an authentic New Testament church. And I'll throw a Baptist in there, even though that offends some people. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it in. Uh, but that's, that is what every believer is supposed to do. That's right. And then people choose careers that take them out of church. Well, I just feel this is what the Lord's leading me to do. Can you read? Can you read the Bible? Let's see, somebody ought to preach this sometime, sometime. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Yeah. What's first and foremost? What should have the priority? Yeah. The things of God, His purposes, His will, His kingdom. Yeah. What furthers His cause, not satisfies my ambition. Yeah. What furthers His cause, not makes me feel good about reaching goals that I had for my life. Does everybody listen to this? Yeah, but I've always wanted to do this, but I've really wanted to do this. I wanted to do. I hate to tell you this, but God is not primarily concerned about your personal comfort, nor you realizing every goal that you ever dreamed of. Amen. That's right. That's not God's primary concern. You know what God's primary concern is? We preached about it last night. His will. The Father's will. That's God's primary concern. And that's supposed to, listen to this, that's supposed to govern the decisions of our life. The will of God. And if your personal ambition, excuse me, if your personal ambition conflicts with God's leading, God's convicting, God's word, and God's way for you living your life, if they are conflicting, then you deny self to say yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
That's what true discipleship is. Well, I, I just I, I think that's just extreme. Well, I didn't think it up. Don't argue with me. It's in my idea. I can be as selfish as anybody. I remember when I went to the Bible Baptist Church, Stillwater, Oklahoma, it's in a university town, and the church was really, I think I made mention of this, and on life support, and I went in there having come from a church in my hometown that grew up to over 200 in attendance in that little hometown. I mean, can I remember when her family came, we were still small, and maybe on Sunday morning, 60, 70 people, Sunday night, 50, uh, Wednesday night, 40, 50 people, you know, and, and I can remember that. Nothing wrong with that. It was wonderful. We were excited and happy to be a part of it. But that church grew, and I, so I got to be a part of it. Went off to Bible college, and, and uh, while I was in Bible college, Springfield, Missouri, joined the Seminole Baptist Church, had an old saintly, godly preacher. I heard him preach for three years, three years while I was in Bible college. I heard him preach twice without tears. And he didn't have a faucet. He was the real deal, you know. I mean, this man had a heart of compassion. I heard him preach twice. And that church was packed on Wednesday night. It was packed on <laughs> It way outgrown the facilities, and the people just kept coming, and that church was alive. Went to the First Baptist Church in Dell City and got hired on by a childhood hero of mine to help on the church staff and to work and serve there. And worked there for seven years. Saw that church grow from around 500 up to well over 800 and hit 900, and much more than that on big and space days and such. I was always a part of a growing church. And so when I left that church to go to Stillwater and take a church that was running, well, they was running about 100. And about 75 of them would come in on the buses. And, and so I took, that, I, I took that church, got her down to 80 in a hurry where I could handle it. I mean, we went from 100 to 80 just about like that. You know, so, I mean, I took that church and I had this ambition. I'm going to knock doors. I'm going to go. I remember walking Sandra around the property and I said, this is where we'll build our first Sunday school building, which we did, by the way. But I, I was pretty carnal about the way. And this is where the new auditorium will be right here. And she's looking at me like, we don't have, the church can't even pay its bills. And you're talking about building buildings. I know, but boy, I had this desire, this ambition, you know. And so I just thought it's going to take right off, look out, clear the way, here we come. Well, a year and a half or so later, I'm saying, oh, God, oh, Lord, how can I build a church? People move away. People get mad. People are spiritually dead. Oh, Lord, how can I build a church? How can I build a church? And about the 14th time I said, how can I build a church? Something came, I'm most sure it was the Lord, uh, came into my heart that said, you can build a church. Upon this rock, you may build my church. That's not what the book says, is it? Upon this rock, I will build my church. And I remember the Lord dealing with my heart about that. You're going on sheer ambition. Sheer human ambition. A preacher with no ambition isn't worth shooting. But a preacher with only carnal ambition ought to be shot. I'm just, oh, you can't say that nowadays. That's not politically correct. But I'm just saying, it, it, to, to have sheer carnal ambition, like a man's going to grow a company, or like a man's going to make so much money, or like a man's going to win the Super Bowl, or a man's going to win the Heisman Trophy, or something like that. To, to enter the Lord's work with just sheer ambition is totally unacceptable. So I had to put aside all of my ambitions. Lord, if you want me to pastor this church, and if it never gets bigger than it is, that's up to you. I'm going to preach. I'm going to work. I'm going to do what you call me to do. 
What happens as a result of that has to be entirely up to you. I had to put myself aside in order to say yes to him. We understand what that means? You know what I found out in my life? It never stops. I said it never stops. It never stops. I've got on one airline, I've got a million seven hundred thousand miles, not even counting the other ones. I don't even know how many, maybe two and a half, three million. I'm so tired of flying. I'm sick and tired of this nonsense that they're putting you through in flying nowadays. I, I just, I don't want to fly. I don't. And there are times I, 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 we moved out of our big house on one acre of land and moved into a retirement village. I like the place. I like to sit down. I like my recliner. I like my own bed. I like times to run around, go here and go there if I feel like it. And if I don't, just sit in the house. I mean, how old do you have to be before you finally earn that anyway? And yet I can't. I can't. I've got brothers giving me advice. I've got a wife that's willing to put an idea in my ear every once in a while. But I didn't ask for this life. No matter how I feel like I want to do and I would prefer doing at this age and this stage of my life, my ambitions and my desires were not God's primary concern when I was 25 years old, and they're not His primary concern now. His will is His primary concern. And if I don't put aside my will to embrace His will, it's not going to be good. I have ceased being His disciple. So you're not saved? That's not what I said. Nothing can change the salvation, the eternal life that is ours. But we're talking about what does a disciple do? They deny themselves. Now, in this time of COVID and all of this kind of thing, you know why a lot of people aren't back in church? They don't want to. We like being at home. Never mind that the definition of ecclesia from which we get church has a whole lot to do with assembling. I could, I could argue the case, I think, effectively, that the very first business of any church is to assemble. And I'm not talking about those who are at high risk. I'm not talking about, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put pressure on anybody. I'm just saying, when a person gets to the place where they say, I don't want to go to church. Well, God's not primarily concerned about what you want to do. God's primarily concerned that you are devoted to Him. That you obey Him. That you love Him. That you love His church. I love the Lord, but I just don't love the church. You're lying. If you say to me, I like you, but I don't like your wife. Well, that's okay. It's not okay. And the church is his bride. Don't say you love him and you don't love his bride. That's ridiculous. Don't make me sit down and say amen again. Come on, friends. And we deny self. And the second thing Jesus said is to take up your cross and follow me. The cross, an instrument of pain, an instrument of suffering, an instrument of death. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You know what Paul's talking about there, don't you? Sure you do. He crucifies self. He dies to himself. He said, I die daily. And he dies to himself. Let him take up his cross. It's an instrument of death, pain, suffering, it's an instrument of shame and reproach. 
That's why the scripture said, Paul writing in Philippians 2, that he was obedient unto death. Watch this. Even the death of the cross. I mentioned that Sunday. Even the death of the cross. The lowest rung on the ladder of humiliation that any man could endure would be crucifixion. Death by crucifixion. And Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now he says, you want to be my disciple? 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 Then be willing to take up that cross and follow me. Did you ever hear anybody say, somebody that's poor, well, it's just their cross to bear. Did you ever hear stuff like that? Man, they've had a lot of sickness in the family. Well, that's just their cross to bear. Do you know that Jesus didn't have that in mind, even remotely have that in mind? Because those are things that come upon us that we don't really have control over sometimes. But to take up the cross is a voluntary act of willingness to identify with Jesus Christ, who in our culture and our society and our world is more despised and rejected as time goes by. You can say you're religious and you won't get in too much trouble. But if you say you're devoted to Jesus and you really are, that's not setting too well with a, a culture that went from being fairly favorable to Christianity to tolerant of Christianity and day by day is becoming more anti-Christian. And we're going to see about our devotion, I got a feeling, as time goes on. And are we willing to suffer the reproach of, uh, and bear the cross of identity with Jesus Christ? Deny self, take up the cross, and follow me. Well, well, Brother Sam, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm saved. Okay, I didn't say you what. I mean, I know I'm saved. Well, good. But I'm not, I'm not ready for that. Well, you don't have to do it. You can save yourself from it. You can protect yourself and do what you want to do. You don't, you don't have to do what he has for you to do. But he said, if any man will save his own life, does everybody listen? He'll lose it. Does that mean they're going to die? Well, we're all going to die eventually. You mean God will kill him? Well, I mean, God's capable of that. But I think really what he is saying is you're going to lose what you would have had. I can tell you right now that uh, talking about surrendering to preach, I'm, I'm just uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, Sandra and I have been in the ministry together 55 years of marriage, 54 years of full-time ministry, and I'm just saying it's been an incredible ride. <laughs> oh, the ministry's hard. People, they hurt you. People will hurt you. Well, yeah. That measure's about like this. The joy of following Jesus, we can't reach out far enough to measure it. Literally. Literally, we can't reach out far enough to measure it. And had Sam Davison said, no, 
I want to farm. I'm going to protect myself from denying myself and I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm still saved. I'm still going to go to church, but I'm not going to do what he has for me to do. I'm going to farm. I'm going to do this. I figure if I would got to be a farmer, I could be easily $5 million in debt by now. <laughs> Easy. But no, I gave up that debt to follow Jesus. And had I not done that, then we would have lost the life <laughs> that we've enjoyed in serving the Lord. In, in place of what? You have to ask that question. What would you have had instead? You have to ask that? If Jesus said, here's what you can have, but if you protect yourself from it, you lose what I would have had for you. You have to know what it was. What, like there's, some, there's a chance you might, well, it might not have been as good as, as what I wanted to do anyway. Well, what are you talking about? So if you lose, if you, if, you, uh, if you protect yourself from it, then Jesus said you lose. But if any man will lose his life for my sake, he'll find it. Amen. Find what? Meaning, purpose, joy, usefulness. Being in the center of his will. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Nobody goes into a mode of self-protection and follows Jesus. That's a good place for an amen. No one goes into a mode of self-protection and follows Jesus. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Take up that cross. Identify with me. If you protect yourself from it, you'll lose what I had for you. If you'll lose yourself to follow me, you'll find, you'll find. You know why he doesn't define it anymore? Because we can't even imagine all that he has in store for those that will live for him. The cost is high, Lord. The cost is high. This passage tells us, O oh Lord, that the cost is high either way. So that if we reject your will to do our will, we lose what you would have had. That's a high price to pay. If we lose our life for your will, then we find life. That was a small price to pay. But it costs either way. You're not interested in fake discipleship. You're not interested in revised discipleship. <clears throat> You're interested in genuine, true discipleship. I pray that amongst your people, I have no person in mind. <coughs> I'm not even able to. But I'm praying by the work of your Holy Spirit, if there are those in the midst here tonight that know my fellowship of Jesus has been pretty much determined on what I wish to do and not to do. And I can see there needs to be a shift. And as much as Jesus Christ is Lord, I need to submit myself to His will. No holds barred. No reservations. No, but Lord, uh, but, 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 but no, no, no bargaining. Just surrender to your will to be a follower of Jesus. 
Thank you for paying the price for our salvation. May we weigh this thing out and really ask the question that we should come to. Would it really cost me to follow Jesus? Oh, it, can, it can look like a self-denial. It can look like cost. But consider what he said he's going to give. What will a man give in exchange for following Jesus and having what he has? What's more important than that? What's better than that? Think about it. You've challenged us by your word, oh God. Now we're going to give an invitation. I don't even know what everybody here in this room ought to do. But if by the working of your Holy Spirit, you're prompting, charging, convicting, convincing some that they need to get serious about fellowship. They need to quit telling you what they will and will not do and get behind you and follow you like you told Peter. I pray your Holy Spirit would be at work. I pray the response of your people tonight, which what it should be is known only to you and to the people in the pew. I pray that it would be what would be acceptable in thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation. And as the piano plays, I'm just going to invite you to pray. I'm not going to preach again. I don't beg and with people to do anything. If the Spirit of God's touched your heart, and you know to be right with God, when you put that pillow on the head tonight, you should answer Him about His challenge in your life, about true, genuine followership of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Don't be embarrassed to humble yourself and come down to an old altar and bend that knee and pray. That's the right posture. Sure it is. If any man, any person, if any person is going to be my disciple, anyone, no exceptions, self-denial, take up the cross, follow Jesus. Wherever he leads, go. Go.